Well, Esquire magazine called it the worst building in the history of mankind. Others, the Phantom Hotel, the Hotel of Doom, and the world's worst building. It was intended to be a 3,000-room hotel. It stands at 330 metres in the air. It's made of three slabs, forming a great giant pyramid. And hundreds of millions of pounds were thrown into this project. Construction began in 1987. But five years later, um, things ground to a halt as the resources dried up. Uh, it was restarted in 2008, but it remains to be seen whether this will ever be completed. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Yes, it was the, it's the Royangong Hotel in Hoyangong, North Korea. It was a great idea, uh, a wonderful, um, bold plan, uh, but the North Korean government couldn't execute it. Uh, they ran out of money. They spent millions of pounds on it. But in the end, it was a total failure. Now, last term, in Sunday evenings, we've been looking at the book of Acts. And in Acts, we see God's great plan for his world. It is a plan to create a people for himself, to bring all things under the rule of Jesus Christ. And in chapter 1, the risen Jesus uh, commissioned the disciples to be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and to the ends of the earth. In chapter 2, he gives them his spirit, equipping them to be witnesses. And then in the following chapters, we see amazing growth as hundreds and thousands of people become Christians and join the Jerusalem church. And then we see amazing opposition, both inside the church and outside the church. And in chapter 7, where we finished um, before Christmas, we see the first martyr. Um, there is increasing persecution. And this death of Stephen in chapter 7 then is a catalyst for a great intensification of persecution in the church. And the question is, well, what's going on? What is God going to do about it? Is this it? Will the resources dry up? Will the church end up looking like the Roingong Hotel? It's a great project that was begun, but never finished. Well, this evening, uh, we're going to see something of God's heart for his world. Something of God's heart for mission. We're going to see that God is the great evangelist. That God is purposefully committed to the spread of his word. We're going to see three truths. Firstly, that God uses persecution to spread his word. Uh, secondly, that God welcomes unlikely people to believe his word. And thirdly, that God uses willing servants to explain his word. And I take it, at the beginning of the year, this is a message that is key for us to hear. I certainly think it is for me, as we think about a new year and a year ahead. Because I take it that most of us find uh, evangelism, telling other people about Jesus, hard. And we're easily dispirited and discouraged. That's true individually, and I'm sure that's true as a church, as we think about ourselves, how effective really are we. And it's so easy to give up, or perhaps to downplay the importance. And yet the wonderful news of Acts 8 is that God is purposely committed 
to the spread of his word. God will not give up. God is the great evangelist. And how does he work? Well, firstly, God uses persecution to spread his word. So after the death of Stephen, the whole church is persecuted. Just look at verse 1 of chapter 8, or 1b. It says this, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So Stephen is killed, others persecuted, and the church disbanded. Only the apostles remain. And the others are scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. In verse 2, we see that godly men bury Stephen, and they mourn for him. This persecution, as we'll see, is under God's control, but is a terrible thing. They, they mourn deeply for Stephen. It's a tragedy. These early Christians were not stoic saints who didn't feel a thing. It's a tragic loss. And the persecution continues through Saul. Uh, we get the sense that Saul is vicious. He's pretty feisty. He's a strategist. He uses all his energy and his passion. He goes from house to house, dragging men and women from their houses, throwing them in prison. It looks pretty bleak, doesn't it? And then we look at verse 4, where it says this, Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So suddenly we get a sense of what's going on. There's persecution, and that leads to dispersion, but that leads to evangelism. For those who go, preach the word, or share the word, as they go. We're not to think of these as uh, pastors, necessarily, or evangelists. No, these are just everyday Christians taking the Lord Jesus with them. And did you notice where they go? They go to Judea and Samaria. Remember 1 verse 8. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So this is where God wanted them to go. This is his plan. It's no accident that there's this persecution. Now, the gospel is going beyond the Jews. This is a significant boundary past. And Luke then focuses on Philip. If you remember, in chapter 6, Philip was one of the seven chosen to be sort of deacons. And he goes to a city in Samaria, possibly Shechem, possibly Samaria itself. And just think what we know about Samaria or Samaritans from the rest of Scripture. Well, we know... To the Jews, they were a despised people. They were considered heretical half-Jews. Just think of Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. That tells us they were the enemy. John says in his Gospel, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And actually it's John in Luke chapter 9 who asks Jesus to rain down fire from heaven upon the cities of Samaria when they don't believe the Gospel. So this is where Philip goes. He's an enemy He's an outsider, but what does he do? He preaches the gospel. And in Samaria, we see that God enables him, just as he has the apostles, to perform amazing miracles, as well as his preaching. So evil spirits are exercised. Uh, The paralyzed, the lame, are healed. Signs accompany his message. People listen, and they receive the message with joy. So the gospel has broken out of Jerusalem. The train moves on. God's plan is coming to fruition. And just think how. 
How is it that this is happening? Well, it's striking, isn't it? It's through persecution. God uses persecution to spread his word. So there's no great missionary strategy. There's no bold gospel plan with prayer and fasting. There's no missionary prayer meeting. There's no conference. There's just persecution. And it seems that Luke is saying for us, he's highlighting for us, that the reason this is happening is because God is taking the initiative. God is the great evangelist. It's his plan. Mission, evangelism, isn't something that Christians have come up with. It's not just Western imperialism. No, this is God's plan that all people get to hear about the Lord Jesus Christ. So what looks like a failure is actually success. What looks like God has lost control is all part of his plan. What looks like the end is just the beginning. Now God uses persecution to spread his word. And just think what we see today, if we think about the church globally, we continue to see there is great persecution of Christians. Christianity is the, the most persecuted of all religions. Every day Christians are losing their homes, their jobs, their welfare, their lives for their association with Christ. And that should make us mourn. It's a terrible thing. And yet at the same time, this teaches us that we mustn't see this as outside of God's control. Now this is something that God is using. There's mystery here, clearly, how it is that God works in this way. But what we see is that this is how he works. God uses persecution to spread his word. Just think of China. In 1949, the missionaries were thrown out of the country by the communists. And it looked like a total failure. They were all thrown out, ejected from doing gospel work in China. But over the next number of years, those missionaries were redeployed in Southeast Asia, Malaysia, Indonesia. And there was great gospel growth there. And in China, well, somehow, there was explosive growth ever since. The communist government tried to stamp out the gospel, but what happened was the reverse. Millions and millions of believers in that land. It's been said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, and it happens again and again and again. God uses persecution to spread his word. So when we hear of this, we should pray. Pray for those being persecuted, definitely. Pray for their welfare, definitely. But pray that through this, God would be spreading his word. I'm going to spend a bit of time later praying for the persecuted church. A great thing for us to do. And individually, if this is true as it is, that God uses persecution to spread his word, what will that mean? Or could it mean that God might use opposition in my life to make me more fruitful for him? And perhaps there's a danger that we focus too much on having a good reputation with outsiders. And clearly that's a good thing. But could it be that we use that as an excuse individually, corporately, to just lie low a bit, to keep quiet, to not necessarily want to offend people for fear of being ill thought of? 
But what we see, though, is that God uses persecution to spread his word. Could it be that if I was more willing to face opposition, that God might use me more? The first truth, God uses persecution to spread his word. Secondly, God welcomes unlikely people to believe his word. So Luke goes on to describe what was going on in Samaria. Just look at verse 9. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he'd amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptised, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptised. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. So there's a man called Simon, who's a sorcerer. He's proud, boastful, powerful. He has supernatural ability to perform miraculous signs. And the people of Samaria follow him as a god. That's what's going on. So Luke depicts this culture rife with the occult, uh, with evil, and with helplessness. But when Philip comes, preaches the gospel, performs amazing miracles, they believe men and women are baptised. Even, uh, even Simon, the great miracle worker, is in awe of Philip. So it's a wonderful thing. It's wonderful that there's this turning to Christ. And yet for the Jews, for the Jewish Christians, it's a little bit tricky. Because suddenly they have to think to themselves, well, what does this now mean for the way that we as Jewish Christians relate to the Samaritans? Um, will this rift be healed? Or will we form a separate church? Will there be a sort of two-tier system in Christianity? Well, as was custom, when, when the apostles back in Jerusalem heard of this great turning to Christ, Peter and John go and check it out. They go and see what's going on. And what we learn is at this stage, the uh, Samaritan Christians have been baptised in the name of Jesus, but they've not yet received the Holy Spirit. And this seems odd. It's odd because normally, we see from the rest of Scripture, uh, you receive the Holy Spirit at conversion, when you become a Christian. So you can't be a Christian and not have the Spirit. Paul says in Romans 8, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So all Christians have the Spirit. And, yet, and that's also clear in the book of Acts. Peter says in Pentecost, uh, repent and be baptised, every one of you. In the name of Christ, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. So what's going on here? I mean, does this chapter provide some kind of alternative but normative two-stage experience? You get baptised, and then at some point you get the Holy Spirit. Well, that's what some Christians have thought, but I don't think that's quite what's going on. So it seems to me what's going on here is unique and not normative. So in Acts 11, a few chapters later, uh, Peter explains... But he understands the gift of the Holy Spirit to Cornelius is a sign that Gentiles have received the gospel, that they're full members of the kingdom of God. So the Spirit is a seal of belonging to Christ. And the question of the Samaritans, remember, is that very question. Do they belong to Christ? 
Are they fully-fledged members of the kingdom of God? So it seems that the delay here, and then the involvement of Peter and John, give an emphatic answer. It's a highlight. Yes, they are true members of the church. They're not second-class citizens. There's not to be a a a two-tier system. Despite their dubious history as Samaritans, they are welcomed by Christ. And so we see that God welcomes unlikely people to believe his word. It's true for the Samaritans, and it's even more true for Simon the sorcerer. So did you spot his response as we read it through to the giving of the Holy Spirit from Peter and John? Well, it's there in verse 19. So first of all, he offers them money, and then he says, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. It is pretty bad, isn't it? And that's an astonishingly bad way to respond. He wants to pay money to be able to give the Holy Spirit to other people. So for him, it's just a magic trick. He sees the commercial benefit. I mean, it's as if he's a cartoon character, and you can see the sort of dollar signs coming up in his eyes. And we can imagine him on the street corner shouting out, Holy Spirit for sale, 500 pounds for five minutes. And this coming from someone who's just got baptised, who's just professed faith in Jesus. It's remarkable. And Peter's outraged. We can sense his anger as he says there in verse 20, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You've no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness. Pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. I see you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. So it seems from Peter's response that Simon's baptism, his profession of faith, is pretty insincere. And yet the wonderful thing here, notice, is that he's given another chance. That's not the end for Simon. Or at least it doesn't have to be the end for Simon. God is willing to forgive him. He's willing to give him another chance to have him back. God welcomes unlikely people to believe his word. But does he repent? Well, it's not really clear from these verses. I mean, he says in verse 24 to, to, to Peter, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you said may happen to me. Is he just afraid of punishment? Does he really want God to forgive him? I don't think we really know. Tradition would have it that he's known to us as the first heretic. But it's not really clear. But what is clear, and is remarkable, is that Simon the sorcerer is offered a way back. The gospel is for Samaritans. It's for the greedy, corrupt, and mercenary Simon the sorcerer. God welcomes unlikely people to believe his word. And as Peter and John leave, they go back through Samaria and they preach the gospel to the Samaritans. John, who once wanted fire to come down from heaven on his people, now has a better understanding of his father. And he wants them to hear the gospel. Because he understands that God is purposely committed to the spread of his word. He welcomes unlikely people to believe his word. And this is extraordinary news for us. 
Because what it means today is that whoever we are, whatever we've done, whatever we're like, however guilty we feel, we may feel, the offer is there for us. God is calling us to himself. The Bible says we're all unlikely. All of us by nature turn from him. And we don't deserve his kindness. And yet in his mercy, he offers us a way back. That is wonderful news for us today. And it's a challenge too, isn't it, to how we think about other people. Do we think of people as God thinks of them? He wants all people to be saved. And is that our longing for people we mix with day to day, for our friends and family, our colleagues, our neighbours? Peter asked us last Sunday morning if there was any kind of person that we don't want to see in this church. Now, I don't suppose we'd say such a thing. But could it be true in our hearts? Perhaps the elderly, homeless, the student, the homosexual, the international. All are welcome, all are called to repent and believe. God welcomes unlikely people to believe his word. Finally, God uses willing servants to explain his word. Well, an angel of the Lord then appears to Philip. And he tells him to go south. He's in the north. And he's told to go south to the desert road. The road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. Gaza is the, the last sort of watering hole on the way to Egypt. And he goes there at God's initiative. Again, God is the one driving this. He's the great evangelist. And on the road, he meets this Ethiopian eunuch. He's from the southern Nile region, the ancient Nubian kingdom, possibly it's modern-day Sudan, that kind of area. But to these people, what it is, it's, it's the end of the world. It's a distant country. No one's ever been there. And so this man is a foreigner. He's a foreigner. He's also a eunuch. So he's excluded from the people of God. He's just been to Jerusalem. And we take it, therefore, he wouldn't have been able to enter the temple courts. He's a spiritual outsider. We also learn that he's an official. He's in charge of the treasury of the Queen Mother, the Kandake. So he's an important man. And he's a religious man. He's gone to Jerusalem, presumably one of the annual feasts. And he's reading the Bible, the, the book of Isaiah. So he's a seeker. This guy's a foreigner, an outsider. He's a significant man, and he's a seeker. And this is the man that God sends Philip to see. And what we have here is a dream evangelistic opportunity. Now, you couldn't get much better. You don't have to ask him if he wants to read the Bible. He's already reading it. It's perfect. You may know from uh, John Chapman, the Australian evangelist who died recently. And he used to pray each day, God, give me an opportunity to speak of Jesus and make it really, really obvious. And this is one of those moments. You couldn't get much better than that. So the Spirit of God tells Philip to go to the chariot. And he runs to the chariot, presumably to keep up with it, and he hears the Ethiopian reading aloud, as was normal in those days. And he says to him, um, verse 30, do you understand what you're reading? How can I? Says the Ethiopian, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Um, Philip is the Ethiopian's social inferior, but that's not really significant in this moment. All he wants to do is to understand the scriptures. So he gets him to come up. And we're told he was reading... Isaiah 53, and here we have it, verse 32. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not 
open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? What his life was taken from the earth. And the Ethiopian asked Philip, is Isaiah talking about himself? Is he talking about someone else? He just doesn't know. And Philip explains to him, starting here, the good news of Jesus Christ. In Isaiah, he speaks of the servant of God. He suffers terribly. He suffers innocently. He suffers unjustly. And yet, somehow, his suffering has great purpose. For it has great power. The servant's suffering causes him to have many descendants. Somehow his death brings life. And so we can imagine, can't we, Philip, with joy. He also explains to the Ethiopian, who didn't have a clue, that Isaiah is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, the great suffering servant. He had no sin, and yet he became sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Isaiah says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought his peace was upon him, and by his wounds, we are healed. Through his death on the cross, Jesus, God has justly punished sin in Christ, and through his resurrection, God has defeated death. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, we can be forgiven and confident of life beyond the grave and peace with God. That is a promise for everyone who believes. And so Philip commanded the Ethiopian to respond with repentance and faith. And we know that because he wants to get baptised. A visual aid of being united with Christ, going down and up and having your sins washed away. And we presume he was baptised in the watering place at Gaza, where they were heading. And then the Spirit of the Lord, who directed everything, who taken Philip there, who told him what to do, then took Philip away. And he goes to Azotus, and then north of Gaza, and then Caesarea, north again, where he stays. That's where we next um, hear of him. And Ethiopian carries on in his chariot, back home, with joy. And I wonder... I wonder if he kept on reading. Because Isaiah 56, if he carried on, says this. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Let no eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me, and hold fast to my covenant, To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I'll give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, or who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. See, the Ethiopian is rejoicing Because he's not an outsider. He's not a foreigner. He's not an outcast. He has a name better than sons and daughters. A better inheritance. An everlasting name. 
And this is the work of God. He is purposely committed to the spread of his word. And the instrument he uses is Philip, a willing servant. God uses willing servants to explain his word. So as we close, we have here a, a wonderful encouragement and a challenge. And the encouragement is this. God is looking for willing servants. He longs to use us. He uses people. He doesn't have to. In fact, we see in the next chapter that he doesn't immediately with, with, with Saul. But he chooses to most of the time. He uses willing servants. So regardless of our background, our personality, education, race, gender, God wants to use us. And we can have conversations that count for eternity. We can make a lasting impact. There might be that I look at someone else and think, well, I understand that God uses them, of course. But me? And yet that's not true, is it? That's not right. God uses willing servants to explain his word. And we can be involved in this wonderful work. What an encouragement that is for all of us this evening. But it's also a challenge, and the challenge is this, that the Bible needs to be explained. In the Old Testament, God gave his covenant, his law, and he gave his people priests who were teachers of this word, this covenant. In the New Testament, we have his word, and he raises us up. Jesus gives gifts to the church, pastors and teachers, evangelists, to be teachers of the word. And all of us uh, have a teaching ministry. We're to teach and admonish each other. So it's a great idea to give a non-Christian the Bible. But even better, to sit with them and read it and study it and explain it. Because the Bible needs explaining. The Ethiopian just didn't get it. You might think, was he pretty stupid? Isn't it obviously about Jesus? Well, no. The Bible needs explaining. So that's a challenge for us. Are we willing to explain the word of God to people? See, there may be non-Christian friends of ours who, for whom church is just too much of a barrier. Perhaps something, coming to something like a Christianity Explore course is pretty difficult as well. But they might just be willing to look at the Bible with us. And the Lord is looking for us to be willing. Perhaps it's a daunting thought. I just wouldn't know quite what to do, how to do it. And there are great resources out there, something like Uncover, um, uh, UCCF, Luke's Gospel. I've got one here, actually. Just happened to have one. Um, something like this. just gives you some questions to go through certain passages, so you don't have to do any preparation. Just meet up with someone and you have a look at it, and questions are there. It could be that daunting thought, but something like this can be really useful. It could be you just think, I don't have the time to do it. I struggle to read the Bible myself, let alone with someone else. But I wonder, could there just be one person who we might be able to offer to do that with? Maybe just for half an hour, once every one, every week or every two weeks? The Bible needs explaining. Let's pray that we'd be willing to be involved in this work. And why not pray for one person with whom we can look at God's word with. A great encouragement tonight. God is the evangelist. He's purposely committed to the spread of his word. 
the Goyangong Hotel stands tall and aloof in North Korea, begun but uncompleted. And you wonder if our God is not like that. He's a great evangelist. He uses persecution to spread his word. So let's pray for those who are persecuted. And let's be willing to be opposed. He welcomes unlikely people to believe his word. Let's be encouraged the Father, the Father's love for us. And let's be willing to go to all people. And he uses willing servants to explain his word. Let's pray that we'd be willing. And let's pray for open doors.